Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Welcome to this New York State of Mind special episode, the last episode in our ASCO 2021 coverage. And I have to say this episode is really special. Eva Segalov and Craig Underhill are joined by some of our favourite guests. Yes, it's Steve Vogel and Balash Helmos from New York. As ever, you'll find links to all of the papers discussed, bios and Twitter handles in the notes on our website. For regular news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Uh, Eva, those were the days. Is that the jazz clubs in Chicago? Remember that when we used to go to conferences and after the sessions you could go to the hotel foyer, listen to some music, pull apart the abstracts, chat about all sorts of stuff. Do you miss all that? I miss going to the jazz clubs and one year even went straight from the jazz club back to the morning session. Oh, really? Good on you. That was, what, 57 years ago? Yeah, a long time ago. I don't think I could do that again. Uh, So, look, I know we're going to just look today at some of the highlights of ASCO, but I've got a little surprise for you. Oh, yeah, go on. Love surprises. Howdy, howdy. Howdy. Who's that on the line, Craig? Steve Vogel. Who? Steve Vogel. I brought my sidekick. Yes, my <laughs> sidekick, Balash Halmos, is here. So, everybody, it's a big welcome to Balash Halmos, who's a thoracic oncologist from New York. He works at the Montefiore Cancer Center, as does Dr. Steve Vogel, icon from the ASCO meetings and other meetings, the San Antonio meetings. So, Steve's Twitter handle just says, I ask good questions. And Balaj gives good gift on Twitter. So it's a great pleasure <laughs> to There's to only thing I can do, so I don't know how that's going to work in this audio podcast. Uh. <laughs> Send it out lots of times with lots of gifts. So the aim of today, guys, was really just to recap on the meeting. We've done some tumor-level podcasts, and we just wanted to talk about the meeting in general. I mean, a lot of us probably enjoyed the online platform better this year than last year. I think last year we were all depressed and in the middle of COVID waves and it was all a bit flat. But this year, I think in the absence of being able to be face-to-face, it was actually a reasonable meeting. What were your thoughts? It was a pleasure that everything was being recorded and was available later. When I go to the regular ASCO meeting, I'm running back and forth from one meeting to the other doing split second timing and lots of hurrying. I I wave to people. I don't have time to stop and speak. Uh, So this was, uh, in that sense, more relaxed. And the slides are really available. Last year, they were. They weren't. Some of the sessions I couldn't get into. This one was pretty smooth. So that was really very nice. And I didn't have to walk through a whole crowded room when I needed to use the facilities. (laughs) I had a kitchen down the hall. Yeah, it was very nice. I have to say that you know, Steve is in my weekly thoracic tumor board, and this is the first time ever I've seen him muting himself. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to see that you've learned the function. So I mute myself on my microphone, not on the Zoom. So you don't see me muting myself. I mute myself all the time. 
What's missing in the ASCO Zoom session is I don't get to ask my questions. Mostly nobody asked my questions. Uh, They had an interesting way of choosing which question to ask. Who liked the question the most? So if somebody, if 30 people clicked on a question, certainly if 50 people did, that question got asked, but it got asked not by the questioner, but by the chairman. And that's a completely different thing most of the time. The chairman paraphrases the question, shortens the question, Mm. dulls whatever edge the question has. Mm. And it's very easy for the speaker to dodge the question if he wants. Yeah. That was an improvement on last year. Last year, I don't think you could answer questions. You were able to post new questions. And I did see one hard-hitting question in the plenary was, how can I download this music? That was one of the feature questions of that session. But so it was possible to ask some questions, but they didn't necessarily answer them all. It was much better this year, not just technically speaking. The ESCO you know, ran it a lot better. You know, last year, if you remember, the first day was a disaster. Yes. This year, everything you know went smoothly. But I think people got used to you know how to kind of amplify things on social media. It was definitely much better for me because this was my wedding anniversary, and we were in like a winery at the time of the plenary session. So what I remember is that Tony Schwerer's talk was a Chardonnay. Very good. <laughs> Did his talk go to your head? <laughs> Did you attend less because it was online? You sort of missed someone dragging you into a session or having a chat about it? I find that, you know, Twitter is a fantastic resource in terms of medical education. So I, I knew that if there was something really interesting, somebody would quickly amplify it and I would be able to catch it. So I think social media, in a way, you know, uh, replaces some of you know, the hallway discussions. And I really enjoyed it. But, you know, we'll all need to catch up with some talks that we missed in the coming weeks. And everything is on the website. And there's all kinds of ASCO direct, you know, follow-up meetings. So, you know, we'll we'll do it. So I found I go to more. Wow. Because uh, if there are two sessions going on at the same time that I want to hear, this year I was prioritizing which one would care more if I asked a question or not. But that didn't seem to matter. So now it's a matter of which one I want to listen to more, which one I want to listen to a little bit under less duress. But it's very hard sitting, listening to paper after paper. So we did a poll on Twitter about when do you think we'll be back face to face? And one response was 2022, 2023, 2024, or who knows. There was about 40% said next year, 2022. So assuming we're back there, do you think, you will go back, or do you think you'd be quite happy to sit in New York for your wedding anniversary, Balage? You know, I think we all miss the ESCO meeting. I think we'll definitely have a lot more virtual meetings in the future. You know, they can be very functional. But I think one big event, you know, for our society is important. And I think the ESCO meeting works well for some of the leading academicians, you know, people who are you know noisy on social media. But there's many, many layers of our large society that are really important pieces. They're not really represented. Industry, you know, really has a very muted function in the social media world. A lot of our, you know, colleagues might not be that busy on social media. So I think, you know, the face-to-face meeting will be needed for for many of us. I think industry had, in some ways, social media makes their just one very brief message. You miss out on nuances. So it works both ways. And we saw that with you know, some of the adjuvant IO trials with DFS endpoints, you know, positive trial, some discussion, but not that level of nuance that you might get 
They have to be very professional. They cannot post a GIF, unlike, you know, me and Craig. And, <laughs> you know, they, they have to kind of be in line with the message of the company. So, you know, it's very different from a hallway conversation and, and some honest face-to-face and critiques, etc. So I, I think we miss that part. They, they probably miss it even more. So it will be welcome to see, you know, ASCO to come back live. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that Clifford Huddis posted a video of the end of the plenary session in 2018 and the kind of like they were human ants crawling over the bridge between the two halves of the McCormick Place Convention Centre. And it was having not been in big crowds for a long time, it was sort of quite shocking to see that level of density of human interaction. So big conventions like that are probably going to be the one of the last things brought back, aren't they? Well, I doubt the ventilation is very good. So I was on an ESMO abstract teleconference and what they're planning to do at this stage is invite all the faculty to be on site in Paris and I was the only one who said I wouldn't be allowed to come because Australia's a bloody island that won't let us out. Mm. A hybrid will be another challenge, again, not to have discussion amongst the people who are there and keep interacting I think I agree that the hybrid on a solar level is a must because we've learned how we can use technology to diversify in a way. You know, some people might not have the money and the funding to come to an ASCO meeting, but the fact that they've had access to all this knowledge this year, participate in many of the virtual meetings, that's huge. And that's in a way equity, you know, global equity to make sure that, you know, we provide access not just to the people who can travel but to others who take care of patients in every part of the world. Yeah, I actually posted a question to Clifford Huddis, the CEO of ASCO, about that because it was still quite expensive to register online. I think it was $750, US which that's $1,000 in Australia. And for people in uh, lower or middle-income countries, that's still a lot of money. And the reply was that certain countries, the price was reduced and for students, the price was reduced, which was good to hear. But I still think if they're going to a hydro model or keep that online model, I think they need to look at keeping the price affordable so everybody can access that. But in general, it seemed like the technology worked a bit better. So should we move on to a couple of the papers? Microphone to Steve Vogel. What was your favorite paper or one or two that you think were practice changing? So there were a bunch that were really important. Probably the most important is adjuvantezolizumab for non-small cell lung cancer. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who get their lung cancers cut out. And clearly the best treatment in two generations, maybe since the invention of the scalpel blade, are the PD-1 drugs. So this showed a benefit. My contribution to this is that if you look at one of the slides, they break down the benefit by PDL1 expression. And you can't tell exactly because they're a log plots. Half the slide on the forest plot is 0.1 to 1, 0.1 to 1, and the other half is 1 to 10 or something. But it looks like most of the benefit was in node positive patients who were PDL1 greater than 50%. So the issue is if you can get someone to pay for the drug, will you offer it? And then will you recommend it? Because if someone pays, you, we can give it. Doctors in the United States aren't limited by what's approved for what indication. If it's approved for any indication, we're allowed to give whatever we think is appropriate if the patient wants it. So uh, I think immediately, I will offer it and probably recommend it to the patients with positive nodes, either in the hilum or the mediastinum, 
and with a PDL1 TPS score or the equivalent of 50% or greater. I'm a bit shocked. I mean, this has been talked about as like Adura 2. This is the Adura study of 2021, and this controversy was using the disease-free endpoint versus overall survival. So I thought you'd come out batting for um, we need to wait. So I think we need to wait. There's no hint that the sponsor, Roche, has declared victory and is going to close the study unblinded and tell the control group to go get pembrolizumab. Uh, that's what made me very upset about Adora because they didn't say what they were going to do when it was presented. Not that anyone to take pembrolizumab, I can tell you that much. It's the wrong drug, you know, atezolizumab. It's a tezolizumab, yeah. Right. Well, it, they're probably the same. Be that as it may, I don't think the data for the lower risk patients and with the lower uh, PDL1 scores is clear. At least on the forest plot, the uh, PDL1 less than one was right there at Unity with uh, fairly tight confidence limits. Yeah. And it's entirely possible that all the benefit in the PDL1 greater than one was actually in the greater than 50. I don't like the way they presented the data. Since they showed us some of the data for in-between, I would like them to show us the real data in-between so we can judge. I would like to know if a PDL one drug, a tezolizumab in this case, early is better than PDL one drug after metastasis. Yeah. And Balaz, what did you think? I believe that Stevio did this easily. It sounds like conversation is over. I mean, if Steve yields, you know, what, what else is there to discuss? Steve <laughs> wants the data, but I like most of my patients. Yeah. And I don't want them to die. So these drugs are drugs where about 15% of third-line metastatic lung cancer patients, having uh, survived three rounds of chemotherapy, 15% of them are alive five years later and functional. So these are really good drugs, much better than chemotherapy ever was. Yeah, certainly remarkable drugs. And, you know, coming back to the study, of course, we've all been very eagerly waiting because this is really the first piece from the adjuvant literature telling us utility of the whole class. So it's really kind of a potential transformational study and certainly the last domino to fall, right? Immunotherapy we use for almost all patients, stage four locally advanced on resectable based on the Pacific, very logical to move it into the earlier stage setting, and relatively well-tolerated compounds. Of course, there's toxicity, but in general, easier compounds than chemotherapy. And, you know, we've been mis mismanaging our patients up until now. Adjuvant chemotherapy has very little value. You know, radiation, we're just learning. We've been using it unnecessarily for so many years. So in a way, it would be nice, it would be nice to kind of grasp this opportunity and do better for our patients with earlier stage of disease. The study, of course, is complicated. It's a complicated primary kind of secondary endpoint statistical design. And I think that confused and, and upset, you know, many of the listeners, you know, this four-stage hierarchical design. Yeah. And as a result, we've seen a little bit of statistical kind of comparisons, but nothing about OS in a way. And, you know, I can recognize the critique saying that, well, DFS is not the right endpoint. But at the same time, nobody says DFS is the right endpoint. We're saying that DFS is a good surrogate endpoint in this context and most likely will yield an OS benefit. 
But it will take some time to learn until that OS benefit emerges. Until then, I think you know the onus is on us to at least have a discussion with our patients about what we've seen. And many patients might opt, you know, to receive the medicine as long as you know we have FDA approval for it, which likely we will. And as Steve mentioned, certainly the benefit seems enriched in the no positive patients with you know high TPS score. So. The enthusiasm will be high, you know, for those patients, and it will lessen and lessen and lessen as you're going down in terms of stage and TPS score. And clearly, you know, with the DORA, I think the EGFR mutated patients, we wouldn't offer this to, and there definitely seems no benefit for our translocated patients. So I think we're learning a lot, you know, from this experience already, and we'll learn more, and I think it will be, you know, transformational as to our practices. So... Uh, Roche, or Heather Wakely, who's a presenter, did show their slide 12 shows the survival of the two groups. for th- three split seconds. Well, I, had, I, had to dig I have it, it on afterwards. my screen. That's one of the joys of the Zoom format. So uh, I'm looking at the slide. I know it came by fast. And there were quite a few EGFR patients, I think about 160, and they didn't benefit. There were very few outpatients, so I think under 20. But the EGFR, there was clearly no indication of an adjuvant benefit. So I I wouldn't offer it now to an EGFR-positive patient. So I don't think that DFS necessarily is a good surrogate for OS. That's sort of a line we've been sold for a very long time to justify, as you say, some pretty poor improvements in survival, particularly in breast cancer and, as you say, in lung cancer, tiny percent improvements in survival. And with the IO class of drugs, it is quite feasible that giving them at the time of recurrence will give you the same OS survival. We just don't know yet. So that's the other argument. I think you're right in a certain way, but let me just argue that as much as DFS and PFS hasn't correlated all that well with OS in the targeted therapeutic context, and as a result, I actually trust the Adora results less than this one, in the IO context, usually the OS benefits surpassed what you might have projected based on PFS or DFS and held up very nicely in Pacific. You know, 10% improvement in, in you know, DFS, 10% improvement in OS. So my trust in it being a surrogate in this context is much stronger. Since we're looking at progression-free survival, not progression, you've taken into account the occasional patient who gets horrendous toxicity and dies. And there's still more people alive and free of progression. In terms of generalizing it to a different population, we at least know we're not killing more people than we're helping at one level. Okay, so do you want to know my Twitter poll answer for this question? So the question was, calling all colleagues at hashtag ASCO21, please vote on this vital question. Would you prescribe 12 months of adjuvant IO for any disease where data exists on the basis of improved DFS? And the options were yes or no slash waiting for OS data. So what do you reckon was the outcome? Well, I know the results because I voted. Ah, but it's 305 votes now. So maybe you voted more than once. So it's 48 to 52%. So almost split down the middle. Mm-hmm. It's like the Republicans versus the Democrats in the U.S. with the last. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to recant then. <laughs> yeah. My read is similar to Bolasha's. These are drugs which in advanced disease 
either cure or close to cure some people. And so it's a different read when you see a PFS improvement than for chemotherapy, which cures nobody. Yeah. And unfortunately, ocimertinib seems to cure nobody. I'm eager. I was waiting to be able to offer these drugs to my patients as an adjuvant. So especially in properly selected patients, I'm eager to offer it. Yeah, that's great. So I think for me, it's a bit of a wait and see. Let's see what the survival data says. I hesitate just in that you can get some catastrophic life-changing, you know, grade three or four adverse events in the individual patient. So as though we're seeing as a class effect is benefit, you know, in an individual patient, it can be a disaster. We've had people die of myositis and myocarditis, and that's the only sort of hesitancy I have at the moment. But it looks like it, hopefully they will be of benefit in widespread use. I think the other way to look at this too is it's a plug for more trials. So we need to look at this issue of like predicting, better predicting for who needs them, who doesn't. Is it just pd one can we measure minimum residual disease, look for circulating tumor DNA, things like that? So maybe that's going to be the next generation of trials. You know, this is just one of maybe seven or eight similar yeah. studies, and all of them will be reading at the next year. And maybe there will be some consistency between them, and, you know, then people will start yeah. believing it, you exactly. know, more and more. Well, your lung cancer is such a bad disease that every lung cancer patient needs them. Probably not every lung cancer patient will benefit to the same degree. So the hard part is going to be figuring out from the patient's point of view who should get it and then figuring out for small degrees of benefit from from society's point of view is can we afford it for a 1% improvement in five-year survival. So I think Craig made such an important comment in terms of the additional research. Like MRD testing is improving so much. Mm. I mean, five years ago, we had no idea that CTDNA testing will be feasible. And now we have all these MRD tests, you know, with incredible sensitivity. So only we need to, you know, look at those to enrich the yeah. patient populations longer term. Not positive, we don't care about this test. 80% will recur. So a test is not needed to enrich your kind of knowledge. But for the stage 1Bs and uh, node negative stage 2s, I think those tests will be very important. Yeah. Working out great. So, Balaj, what was one of the highlights for you at the meeting? Well, you know, I think one of the highlights was from the melanoma sessions, you know, the okay. LAC3. Um, and yep. I don't treat melanoma any longer, but I did as a fellow, and it was the, the most horrible disease, you know, to take care of metastatic melanoma. And of course, immunotherapy has made a huge impact, but now seeing a new, you know, checkpoint suddenly with the significant noise to show that. There's additional benefit, you know, doubling of PFS in addition to any volume app. I think that's the class that's a drug that definitely will require our attention. And I, I want to see studies now in lung and everywhere else, you know, where checkpoint inhibition works in a way. So I think that's huge. That's a very strong signal uh, for us to go after. The digits, you know, we're still a little bit hesitant about team three. We haven't seen a whole lot of data, but this one, you know, I think I think the signal here is, is certainly very robust. That's great. Interesting highlight because we've actually got Professor Georgina Long from the Melanoma Institute Australia in Sydney, who, you know, is one of the international leaders in this field. And she's actually talking about that study on the podcast. So I think you're right, Balaj. I think now we want to see lag three studies in other tumors. It's quite exciting. If we've seen this kind of plateau on the curve, will it be able to bring up the plateau and give better long-term survival and even more cures. It's amazing. 
So I've got a question for Steve in his DFS euphoria. What? So you're going to be giving PARP inhibitors to women with triple negative BRCA positive breast cancer? I think so. Wow. <laughs> you heard it first here on the New York State of Esco's mind. So, yeah, the study uh, did a fairly good job of trying to select high-risk patients. And this had a lot of benefit. I, I can look up the number, but it had a lot of benefit. So who would I offer it to first? I would try. And I mean, the study was mostly BRCA1 patients. And so it was mostly triple negative because that's what BRCA1 mutation carriers get in the breast. And there was a big benefit. So I would try and pick out the worst patients with a triple negative breast cancer. And those are the ones who have residual disease, especially RCB2 and 3, residual cancer burden, 2 and 3 after induction chemotherapy at their resection. They have a lot of breast cancer. And those do terrible. We had a prospective trial, which answered almost a question not worth asking. What's better to give to these poor patients with a terrible prognosis, capecitabine or cisplatin? And the answer was, neither is better. And half the patients had uh, relapsed or died, I think, in five years. It was pretty awful. Uh, And they'd all gotten uh, other chemotherapy as well ahead of that. So certainly for those women with residual cancer burdens uh, that are more than trivial, I would want to give them this drug now. And I would design their therapy so I could assess residual cancer burden. Not concerned about the long-term consequences of the PARP inhibitors? So this was, I think, a year. The reason it's a year is if you go to uh, five years, I think there's a 7% incidence of acute leukemia. I think the long-term consequences of death are really severe. So I'm really interested in having the patient survive. Would I give it to a lady with a 7-millimeter tumor and negative nodes? Probably not now without more data. But women with seven positive nodes and residual cancer after uh, fairly intensive chemotherapy, remember we're talking about triple negative BRCA1 mutation carriers. Yeah, I would offer it. They're in trouble. I would tell them we haven't proved it, but I would say if it were my wife, I would tell her to take it. Yeah. It's such an interesting ASCO, isn't it? Because mm. we had some pretty dramatic results. It's how you interpret them and, and whether you delve into the subgroups and what you take away. So we have a new life-prolonging drug for prostate cancer. I don't know if anybody noticed it. It's a antibody uh, radioisotope conjugate attaching PSMA, and it prolongs life by three or four months. So, Steve, there's a lot of the work that's been done in Australia for that development of that drug. And so, yes, we've actually all had patients who've received that drug. So, yes, that one was certainly on the radar down under. But also very controversial because the control was either best supportive care or androgens for people who had already progressed on Mm. and been declared hormone refractory. So So maybe you know what the control arm was. I just went over the slides and I listened to it and I can't hear what the control arm is. It's They had to pick something that wasn't chemotherapy and wasn't a drug they had already. Maybe they were giving Casodex. I have no idea what the control arm was. It was basically patients who'd already had abiraterone or enzalutamide or darolutamide, and then they switched over to another drug in the same class. So it's that switchover. So it was actually very controversial. My reading of that is that it's a toxic placebo. Yep, absolutely. So all those drugs, except perhaps for darolutamide, have a bunch of side effects. 
But the same molecule, Steve, has been compared to cabazitaxel, so is the second-line chemo after failure of docetaxel in an Australian-led study was presented at ASCO-GU, and that showed, again, a disease-free survival benefit hasn't yet shown overall survival benefit. So it was done as the, you know, a line earlier. So this was the second big international study presented. Well, cabazitaxel, after failure of uh, docetaxel, yeah, which has is about a three-month survival benefit. That's right. So you would guess that when you get the survival data, it, they would come out equal. It was a really problematic design if you don't have a good standard Mm. of care arm. And I think we have got new players in the field. Although the pharmaceutical companies are acquiring these compounds, they're not traditional even intravenous uh, drugs per se. So I don't think that advance is as spectacular as you think, Steve. No, no, it's not so What's happened with prostate cancer is there was a spectacular advance when abiraterone came along. And then there are three drugs that are new potent antiandrogens that are perhaps a little easier to give than abiraterone. But none of them is for end-of-the-line patients. They're all three-month drugs. So this is another three-month drug which chips away at, at the monster. Yeah. I have one more paper I'd like to mention. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So there was an American study now with more than 10 years of follow-up of extended endocrine therapy. And this is a messy, messy area. Wonderful paper. They tried to incorporate uh, the breast cancer index, which is being very strongly marketed in the United States, to help clinicians decide who will benefit from extended hormonal therapy. And it's by no means clear that this is a big help, and the study didn't show that. But what they did show was that most of their events were contralateral new breast cancers that were prevented. So then they, there obviously aren't that many of them, so not too many patients benefited. But they had a 1.8% reduction in the gross rate of distant recurrence. There's no survival advantage yet with a follow-up of more than 10 years. But the most of that distant recurrence prevention was in women with positive nodes and a high breast cancer index. So you can actually get the benefit up to about 6% from extending androgens from five years of initial hormone therapy to 10. And that's new data. So I've not been giving more aromatase inhibitors. I'm sorry, I didn't. I said anti-androgens. More aromatase inhibitors to women who've had five years of it. And now I might for women who are with positive nodes and a high BCI, because this at least suggests that there is a rate of prevention of distant metastases that is probably worth doing. The uh, benefit for the node-positive patients with high BCI was 5.6% at 10 years. So this is for five-year versus 10-year studies? Yeah, it's after five years of treatment, either with an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen followed by an aromatase inhibitor. In that first five years, should you give more or not? The other groups really didn't benefit regardless of their breast cancer index. Let me highlight one that I really like is the nasopharyngeal yeah. one, which is close to close to you guys. And it was an Asian study showing some you know, tremendous benefits to the integration of IO into upfront chemotherapy. And I thought it was going to be breakfast changing. Yeah, it's very important, and it's been duplicated. There are two studies from China. One got the plenary, and one got presented in the head and neck session. 
And they're both using the same drug, and they both showed the same thing. Here's the problem for Americans, and now, now we'll be in a reverse situation. None of these drugs will be approved in the States, and we'll be kind of just salivating over the world using chemo IO up front for nasopharyngeal cancer. And I've asked this, you know, subtle question on Twitter, and I've been yelled at, can you replace the IO with an approved IO? We have six of them in the United States. And I was told no. Who said no? Right. I don't Vogel know. says yes. I just ran away. I ran Vogel away. Vogel says yes. Do a poll. <laughs> I would have a, such a hard time seeing a young patient with advanced you know, nasopharyngeal cancer and not thinking about how, how I could get that patient immunotherapy up front. Yep. So the answer is you can give it. What you can't do is get someone to pay for it. That's the problem. But it is a more fundamental question of how different is each IO and do we need to repeat every scenario with every IO? And certainly there needs to be cheaper IOs and that will come out of the Asian markets probably. So, you know, that's a big question, isn't it? Yep. There's a company now in the United States based upon trying to reduce the prices of cancer drugs. And their first target is EGFR, EGFR mutated lung cancer. There was a phase three study from China with this third generation drug versus gefitinib showing the exact same, you know, PFS benefits as with asimertinib. So, you know, replicating basically flora with a drug that is supposed to be much, much cheaper when they bring it to the American market. And I'm very curious to see if American oncologists will respond to that or not, because the co-payment of the patient probably will be the same. It's society sort of, you know, suffering the burden of the cost, not the actual patient. And then the physician doesn't benefit one way or the other. The physician may not benefit, but his employer may. I don't for a minute think that the drug supply chain is clean. I think it's dirty and it's opaque and there are all sorts of hidden bonuses, kickbacks going on that are hidden. Uh, It would be wonderful for our society if Congress passed a law to make the payment chain open. But this is where, you know, Medicare should step in to say, well, if I have two equal choices, you know, for Medicare beneficiaries, I will support only choice A, which is, you know, have the price. And in Australia, we have some sort of parity, but it means often we don't get anything different in America because it's so big, the market's so big that that might not be a factor. I was just going to say it's an interesting topic and we shouldn't forget. So a lot of the people listen to the podcast are in countries where they just can't afford these drugs aren't available in the market and some of the interesting papers at ASCO too were about that issue of disparity and even in the US regional and socioeconomic disparity about who gets an NGS test up front in lung cancer. So there's a lot of work I think just to try and get the system right to bring these benefits to everybody instead of just to those who can afford it. So I thought it was a great meeting and there's been and all the podcasts there's been lots of discussion about this very issue about endpoints and benefit. And so, yeah, it's been good. The same thing happened in the plenary with, you know, giving Pembro after nephrectomy for clear cell renal cancer. It was a DFS benefit, not OS. And so there's a big debate about the magnitude of the benefit. It was a good talk. I had a Chardonnay with it, as I mentioned. (laughs) Which one? This is the one that I had the Chardonnay with. So um... There you Ah, go. So you remember it well. I don't know if any of you treat renal cancer, but there's no human on the planet who would not rather get uh, pembrolizumab than serafinib. (laughs) That's true. That's probably true. 
But can I uh, ask you about this issue of first racism and equity, which was brought up, and then the abstracts about sexual harassment, what your opinion is? Because I think it's really a landmark ASCO in that these are being discussed as important cancer-related problems. So the first one is racism within the American system for practitioners as well as I think the inequities in patients and disparities well recognised. But do you have any comments about practitioners and racism and opportunity for racism? Just as an aside, Craig, I saw last night our esteemed VCCC organisation has made three outstanding people, Mm -hmm. lifelong fellows. It's a great honour, inaugural. But all three were older white males. It was pretty stunning. They described lifelong service and great impact and seemed that they couldn't find a female to include in that. Well, you know, certainly um, it's hard not to think back at last year's as kind of a breakthrough year in terms of at least facing, confronting some of these issues in the world, in America and in American medicine with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, with the COVID pandemic hitting minority communities so much harder. And much of that has to go back to, you know, elements of structural racism. And I think we all have to learn from it, uh, you know, try to confront and, and improve upon the issues, uh, you know, we face. You know, Steve and myself, we work in the Bronx, and the Bronx is one of the poorest and the most minority-rich communities. And I think we we feel fully invested in terms of making sure that for our patient populations, you know, we do our absolute best to provide access, not just to the best drugs, but to bring clinical research to them as well and you know, make sure that innovation, you know, they, they can benefit from as well. So, you know, hopefully we'll all, you know, do our little task to improve things. In terms of sexual harassment, of course, that just came to the surface a couple of weeks ago. And I can say that personally, I've witnessed that in my own, you know, practice as a as faculty member or trainee, but definitely, clearly it's here, you know, based on the surveys. But beyond sexual harassment, there's so many ways the bullying and harassment and racial discrimination exists in today's medicine that I think, you know, we, we should focus on sexual harassment and use that as a pedestal to expand upon, you know, making sure that, you know, we can provide better equity to our colleagues and to our patients alike. I agree. These are very difficult problems. And I think we should be very pleased if we make them a little better. Just a little better is a lot. They've been throughout society, throughout civilization or no civilization. There have been tribal wars and tribal harassments and tribal murders. So all we can do is disapprove and disapprove firmly of both as best we can and try and support people who are being unfairly disadvantaged. But it's very difficult. But I got to say that ESCO leadership has done a great job yeah, they have. You know, this year to kind of bring this to the surface, make it an integral part of you know the meeting. So you couldn't just look away. You know, this was part of the meeting every single yeah. session in a way. So I thought that they've, they've done a fantastic job making sure that this is part of emerged into our society from now on. And they're very mindful of their international role too, which is great. You know, it's the American society, but it's really the international society. So on this very bright and positive note, on Friday night in New York, it's dawn in the future in Australia. Balas suggested that we had a little nice musical outtake. So last year we had 
Mayhem Tom, otherwise known as Tom John singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for regarding the Adura study. And this time we're popping over to Strawberry Fields in Central Park and imagining a world without lung cancer. Imagine there's no lung cancer It's easy if you try No chemo to puke from The future is bright like the sky Imagine all the patients Leading extra years ah, ha, ha, ha. Imagine there's no more pain It isn't hard to do No complications to suffer or die from And no radiation to Imagine all the people. Is that Bullash singing? Yeah. That's the number one song ever sung about lung cancer. <laughs> you knocked Tom John off the charts. No, 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 no. I, I had to do like a fundraiser for a Lung Cancer Research Foundation, and this seemed like a, an opportune way of doing it. I was hoping for a tenor aria about freedom from Fidelio. So thank you. It's been an amazing episode to recap on the meeting, New York State of ASCO's mind. So thank you so much, Balash Halmos and Dr. Steve Vogel in New York. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. See you later. Right. Those muting skills, remember, for the tumor board next week. <laughs> you I think he wants it. me to shut up. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.